0: Howdy how, this is Aswi, and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump.
1: Yo, what is up, guys? We are back with another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. With me, I got AC. What's up? I've got us sweet. Howdy how. And as you guys know, I'm Anushan we just finished watching the Phoenix Suns play against the Los Angeles Lakers, and in a critical Game 3, the Los Angeles Lakers managed to come away with a win, winning 109-95. to And of course, one of the guys who has been a major player in this series, and who's going to be a major player for the majority of the Lakers' remaining games, is LeBron James. It's very easy to say that LeBron hasn't necessarily been at 100% throughout all three of these games, but today he came through when it mattered most. So guys, I need to ask what are our thoughts
2: so lebron over the first few games genuinely looked like he was either injured or old or maybe both he was still controlling the game and he still made a lot of important plays in all three games he had the best plus minus on the lakers so the man is still able to be efficient even when he's not 100 in a lot of ways he reminded me of late career jason kidd as some of you who know me might know that i absolutely love Jason Kidd, so I don't say that lightly. Jason Kidd was a beast. He controlled the game in so many ways. And later in his career, when his athleticism declined, he became almost more of a spot-up shooter, and he would still control the game when it was from 30 feet away from the hoop. That's what LeBron was doing the first few games, and obviously, in game two. The man hit a variety of crazy fadeaways to close that game out, hit a big three to end it, and he was a lot better defensive than he was in the first game as well. But we still didn't see him drive. And that's when LeBron James is the most unstoppable force in basketball, right? When he has that drive game as well, it forces the defense to collapse. And and he wasn't driving even when he had guys like Devin Booker on him. And when he had guys like Mikael Bridges on him that he has a huge strength advantage against, he wasn't muscling him in or backing him down by the post-ups. He was just kind of very passive. And, And again, he was mostly a jump shooter. And the same thing happened in the first half of this game to the point that it actually became kind of alarming. The man was horrible in the first half, with only two of six from the field and looking very passive. Even the TNT guys talked about at halftime that maybe LeBron is just hurt. And lo and behold, in that third quarter, LeBron came out, he drove over and over again, and it just opened up the Lakers' offense, which has frankly been pretty subpar. It just shows that the
0: impact that someone like LeBron can have. When you look at the Lakers' offense without LeBron doing his thing, driving in, going at people it's very concerning. When you look at the Lakers role players, they haven't been shooting very well in this series. And I feel there's a direct correlation between LeBron not being aggressive and them not playing well because it's kind of like bad body language. It hurts morale and role players, they thrive on that. They need to see their leader going hard, attacking the offense and kicking it out to them so that when the pass comes to them, they, they feel that energy and they're more likely to make the shot. The Lakers' offense has no chance in hell at beating a Jazz team that can shoot lights out, or certainly not a Nets team should the Nets make it to the finals.
2: Honestly, that's a great point about the impact of seeing your top player not play up to par, having sort of a trickle down effect onto the role players. If we, the audience, are watching this guy on TV and saying, hey, this is not the LeBron we're used to seeing. Imagine what the teammates do when they, they see LeBron just passing the ball up and not being as aggressive as he could be and not finishing the way we know he can finish. Apparently, he's not even attempting to finish. So the fact that he still has that in his bag and he can still go to that makes you think that, okay, he's gaining confidence in that ankle. It's not that he can't do it. It's that maybe he was hesitant to or he was saving himself so he didn't have to do it unnecessarily. You say it's
0: not that he can't do it.
2: He simply won't. That's right. Just like us brown men, we won't jump.
1: (laughs) I think you guys make very good points about LeBron and his ability to drive because throughout his whole career, he's been a guy whose offense really ignited with his ability to get to the basket. Now, granted... In his older age, he's developed a very good jump shot. He's a very lethal three-point shooter now. But against a team that does not really have great perimeter defenders, at best, you could say Jay Crowder is their stopper. But even then, it's not a guy that has any chance at guarding LeBron, and we, we saw that today. And a guy like Chris Paul, who is a great perimeter defender in his own right, but he's just too small to really check LeBron. So it's not a matchup they want to have in the first place. And their interior defender is DeAndre Ayton, who is okay in terms, if you just look at from a stats perspective, but if you're actually watching the games, DeAndre Ayton is is not necessarily a defense first player. He's more of an offensive tool so LeBron should be having his absolute way with the Suns team and for the first two games it really didn't seem like LeBron really wanted to get himself to the basket and like you said AC it's a definite worry because again this is what sort of ignites LeBron's offense in the first place because we know how good of a playmaker he is so if he's not getting himself to the basket he's really not initiating his full capabilities so I do think that LeBron showing us that he hasn't lost that step is very important especially against teams that don't really have the personnel to deal with him and who would prefer him to take jump shots, it's definitely a good sign coming from LeBron.
2: Yeah, I agree, Anu. If you don't have the personnel to stop LeBron one-on-one, and very few teams do, it leads teams to try things like various junk defenses, like zone. You've seen quite a bit of zone in this series. Also, just packing the paint, even in men, where you're kind of leaving your guy open when keeping at least one foot in the paint. And that's where there is also a give and take, where I agree with Asui that LeBron not driving is one of the reasons the shooters are struggling, but the shooters struggling is also clogging that lane up. And that brings me to another question I have for you guys about the series, which is, we all know, we've talked about this before on the pod, the Lakers are at their absolute best with Anthony Davis at the five. The numbers back this up as well. Last year's playoffs, last year's regular season, this year's regular season. However, they aren't going to those lines with AD at the 5 until they're closing games. So we are seeing a little bit of Drummond. We're seeing a little bit of Gasol. Harrell is actually now completely out of the rotation. In game one, Harrell played minutes and Gasol got a DNP. That's reversed now in games two and three. So in the minutes in which AD is playing with another big, what are you
0: seeing from the likes of Drummond and Gasol? Well, Drummond has been playing extremely hard. On defense, he works his ass off. On offense, he's getting boards. Didn't you say something about how the Lakers have a 40% chance of getting offensive rebound?
2: Yeah, I mean, when Drummond is on the floor, and this stat's only updated over the first two games, but he once again had a pretty dominant rebound performance in Game 3... The Lakers have a 40% offensive rebound rate, which is actually absurd. And to put that in perspective, the Pelicans let the league in offensive rebounding with only a 28.6% offensive rebounding rate. So even though Drummond clogs up spacing, he
0: absolutely is punishing this smaller front court of the Suns on the glass. As for Marcus Saul, I think... Every minute he's out there is quality minutes of an intelligent veteran old player. You know, he can kick the ball if need be. He's one of those players that if he's on the court, he knows you got to give the ball to LeBron. So I appreciate all the minutes that he's in there. He's not forcing anything. No, he's not. He's not forcing anything. He's kind of keeping things stable.
2: And his spacing is is a a huge factor. Yep. You know, I, I actually don't think defensively that this is the best series for him in some ways. I understand the, the idea of even playing Harold over Misard out because Harold's a little better at trapping and, and sort of coming back to the play, which you need to do with the kind of shooting that the guards of, of Phoenix have. But Gasol is competent at that. just that, like, let's say he shows up high, he can't continue to stay in front of someone like Chris Paul or Devin Booker. And then he doesn't have the speed to get back to his man, like Andre Drummond is doing. And one of the interesting developments in this series is. The Lakers are playing these pick and rolls in games one and games two. They're really using only the two people in the action to guard those pick and rolls. So the big man who is defending the screen setter is actually showing to level the ball and either not so much trapping that often, but at least making a hard show and then running back to his own man. And there's no help from the weak side on either side because the Lakers are so afraid of the Suns shooter. So you don't have a guy like LeBron or Caruso or whoever is on the wings tagging that role man. So it's, it requires a real sprint to get back in the play. It's one of the reasons Aiton has kind of dominated this series. But between the two of them, actually any of you can throw in Harold in this, Drummond has been by far the best at doing this. Now, when you have AD at the five, they're absolute best lineups. You can just switch this too. And, and that, that's really when the Lakers are their absolute best defensively because they can just switch that. And they're not have to worry about showing hard and then recovering. And if they need to, probably no big in the NBA has more overall speed and length to make a recovery than Anthony Davis
1: right and to speak a bit about AD playing the four and AD playing the five I mean you you said it perfectly I I think that AD is the best pick and roll defender at the big man spot especially when he's playing the five just because of how versatile he is and how many schemes you can employ with him but what I notice when he's able to play with Drummond is he's a guy who I think it relieves him a little bit when it comes to the rebounding duties because we know how much of a beast AD can be on the interior when he's banging down low trying to get boards but when AD is sharing the floor with Drummond I I think it from a mindset sort of thing AD can sort of relax a little bit and not try to hit the glasses hard and let Andre Drummond sort of do all the dirty work inside even though it's harder for him to actually score and be a primary option on offense he's still able to sort of leave those duties to Andre Drummond and then when Andre's sitting on the bench AD can come in and sort of take over those duties and still be a primary offensive option for them. And I think when he shares the floor with Gasol, it actually helps everyone on the court because it allows AD to sort of play in a way where he's making cuts and Marc Gasol can play in that high post and make passes to everyone. And sometimes I notice that when Gasol's just by himself with some of the other guys on the court, he's able to sort of help initiate a type of offense with them. And I love seeing LeBron and Marc Gasol when they do share the floor play together because it's like watching two extremely smart veterans just conducting everything on the floor. It's great to see. You
0: know, the more I watch this series, the less sold I am on the necessity of putting AD at the five in this series. Because if he's with Drummond, then Drummond can take all those low post bangs, right? Like, they need to save him. Because after this series, it's probably smooth selling to the finals for these guys. At least the conference finals. So, you want to save AD. Like, today his knee buckled or something like that. So, he had ice on it. So, he might be coy with the camera saying, oh yeah, I'm okay. But... I don't know. He looked a little slow after he banged his knee earlier in this game. With Gasol, you lose a little bit of that defense also because if Drummond's in there, you can have him sprinting and they can do the two-man pick-and-roll defense, right? They can't really do that with Gasol. So as long as Drummond's out there, you save a lot of energy for your players all around because he's the one who's just sprinting there.
2: So also, you think that Vogel is kind of keeping those AD lineups at the
0: five, the clear best lineups for the series where they need them to win. Exactly. And yes, it's true what you said, Anu. With Marcus Solid, it's probably a little easier for AD to score because he has more spacing, but he's been dominating with Andre Drummond. He put up 30 and 10 plus in the past two games, tonight and game two. So it's not like it's really hindering him too much. If anything, it's helping him save energy on the defensive and having Drummond out there with him
1: this makes me wonder, and it's something I was thinking about while watching today's game, and I wanted to ask both of you, but do you guys think that the Lakers, given how good they are defensively, even through struggles on offense, do you think that they can potentially hold any sort of 10-point lead with about 5 minutes to go in a game? Because I don't see them struggling that much when it comes to those positions, and that's happened twice in Game 2 and Game 3, where the Suns have sort of clawed their way back into that 10-to-7-point like 7 point range. But they can't seem to get over the hump because of how good the Lakers execution is in late game situations. So I wanted to see what you guys thought about that.
0: I mean, this is a championship team. They are the reigning champions for a reason. And you can't be a reigning champion if you don't have good late game execution. And their depth lineup has the veterans of that championship team.
2: You know, Anu, don't forget that last year, the Lakers set kind of an outstanding and unprecedented record in that they never blew one game the entire season in which they went into the fourth quarter with a lead. That shows that once they have a lead, they will close the game out because they're so elite defensively. And offensively is where I think this team is going to struggle. And when it comes to facing the really high-powered offenses, I wonder if they can quite score enough. But it just so happens that their closing lineup kind of massages over a lot of those problems, right? Because when they have two bigs out there, it's not just about AD. It's also, it's taking the driving lanes away from someone like Schroeder or someone like LeBron. And when you you play a little bit smaller, it's going switch everything. So you're putting LeBron at the four and AD at the five, their best positions. You're putting everyone else kind of in the right roles. And all of the guys who fill in there next to them are guys who can defend and make all these little plays at a high level. So I think that... They still have one of the great lines. I still think the best single play you can run in the NBA is when LeBron's at the four and 80's at the five. And they have to be at those positions. They can't be the three and the four, or everyone will just switch them with another big standing there. But when LeBron's at the four and 80's at the five, that pick and roll is frankly unstoppable because they, no matter what you do, they're going to get a good look out of it. And then that all has him run one of the other best plays. And last season, actually the single best play statistically in the NBA, you know what it was, guys? It's a LeBron James post-up. And that only really works when he's at the four. When he's at the three, there's just too much clogged space out there. Unless maybe with Gasol he can kind of get away with it a little bit because he can hit threes. So that puts him in that position to run those
0: closing plays. If I were Frank Vogel, I would want my closing lineup to be without Dennis Schroeder. Meaning I'd have Caruso, Kuzma, KCP... LeBron Anthony Davis I want people on the court who knows that the person who needs the ball in his hands at the beginning of every possession has to be LeBron I don't want the fate of the team to go through the mind of Dennis Schroeder (laughs) like it's as simple as that I I just I don't like when LeBron's off the ball I think he's one of the greatest basketball minds we've ever seen and that's the kind of person you should trust when you want to close a game
2: well, that's an interesting point because there's no question that Dennis Schroeder, when he's in the game, will try to take some positions for himself. I'm not entirely sure I agree with the premise that you're saying there, though, because I do think that any team that LeBron has been on has had a secondary creator of some sort. Look like at Dwayne Wade, Kyrie Irving. And last season, let's not forget, Rajon Rondo closed a lot of games for them, too. And sometimes not having the ball in LeBron's hand is also good because he doesn't have to do something every single position. Someone else can run a play. However, I also kind of slightly prefer the Caruso, KCP, Kuzma lineup, only just defensively, because it's a really switchable lineup. But I think there's still value in Dennis Schroeder. The other thing I'll say about Dennis, he statistically last season was one of the most clutch players in the NBA and was very good in the playoffs. And this year, again, it seems like every time in games two and in game three when the other team was making a bit of a run, there he was getting a an easy layup at the basket. And that does have some value. So I'd be surprised if they didn't use him, although in the critical must-win play-in game, it is interesting that they benched him with two minutes to go and put in Caruso for the very lineup you suggested.
0: Yeah, because at the end of the day, a coach is going to go with his guys that he won a championship with. They have that level of chemistry in high-stress situations. I think he's also playing especially bad that game. It was like
2: a minus 20. so For sure. For sure. And now that he's a little bit further from that COVID absence that he had, you know, maybe he's getting his legs under more and, and, and that's not happening. He's been very good the last two games for sure.
1: Yeah, in fairness to Schroeder, he finished today with 20 points and he was plus six today. And he did come up with some pretty key plays to sort of halt the momentum of the Phoenix Suns tonight. So it was definitely good by him I do agree though that Vogel needs to trust the guys that he won a championship with and Dennis Schroeder might not be in that level of final two-minute lineups so I would have to agree with you there Oswee but let's turn it over to the guys that are playing here and that's the Phoenix Suns so what do they need to do in order to sort of claw their way back into the series and is it even possible for them to have any sort of shot being down 2-1 against a LeBron James-led team
0: I'm going to go for a low-hanging fruit here. It all rests on the shoulder of Chris Paul. (laughs) What an all-sweet joke.
1: (laughs) That's a real sweet joke if I've ever heard one.
0: Yeah, but it's true, right? Because Chris Paul is the lifeblood of that team, right? He is the guy that they all rally around. He is their leader on so many levels. And more importantly, he's one of the biggest threats on the court at all times. So any minute that he's not on the court or he's not playing his game is detrimental to the success of the Suns. But I think that he will probably play more minutes in the next game. I, I really feel like they were saving him this game. I mean, there's a
2: few extra days rest between game three and game four. We saw that in the beginning of this game, Chris Paul actually looked kind of back to normal, he was hitting his classic patented mid-range jumper. They say there's only three things you can count on, depth taxes and Chris Paul's mid-range jumper, right? I mean, that thing is so money, <laughs> so consistently. And he was unleashing that, and he's actually causing the Lakers some problems. And then towards the end of the game, he once again sat. So maybe that's something what you're saying, Asui. To answer your question, though, Anu, obviously the biggest thing will be Chris Paul. Being healthy, because I just don't think they have enough to overcome this. Frankly, almost historically good defense in terms of modern NBA basketball. This was the number one defense from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. I'm talking about the Lakers, and that's without some of their best players missing huge chunks of time. There, so they're schematically really sound. They have amazing defensive personnel. The only defenders in their entire roster who aren't that good. So I'm talking about Montrezl Harrell, THT, McLemore are more or less out of the rotation and kind of just play spot minutes here and there. Everyone else in that roster is an above average defender at their respective position. So you need multiple threats. You can't go all through Devin Booker. I know you guys remember in game one, there was that play the Suns used over and over again where it was like this handoff from Chris Paul to Devin Booker who was curling around him and there was like this pick set by Aiden. So it turned into a pick and roll and then Chris Paul would dive to the corner and the Lakers had a lot of trouble with that. That's the threat of having two great players and Paul and Booker working off of each other. That just hasn't been the case since then. So is absolutely on the money. That's He has to return to help. I think apart from that, if I was the Suns, I would start doubling Anthony Davis a little bit more aggressively. Right now, Monty Williams has been a little bit hesitant to really double him. And I think it's kind of a way that he plays in the start of every series. He doesn't believe really in throwing hard doubles. I think right now, AD is killing them though for two straight games. And the weakest part of AD's game has always been passing out of double teams. He's gotten a lot better in that regard, especially this season. Made some real progress, but you gotta test out whether he can make those passes. And right now, the Lakers shooters are ice cold. So make them beat you. Don't let AD just get to the line. I mean, listen, tonight, once again, the Lakers shot below 30% from three, and yet they're winning these games going away. They also turn the ball over and all this stuff. Why is that happening? Because AD is just dominating this series after his subpar game one.
1: Yeah, lots to unpack. One with Chris Paul. He, after that injury, never looked the same, right? So game two, he played bad. Game three, like you said, he started off well, but he overall on the day was minus 20, and he went three for eight, only playing 27 minutes. The Suns will not get away and will not win this series if Chris Paul is playing 27 minutes. He has to plug in at the very least 35 plus in order for them to have a shot. And if he's not on the court, you're losing your leader on this team. We know how good Chris Paul is and not having him is a huge detriment. AD is absolutely killing them. And I, I do think a huge part of that is just because, like I said before, the Suns don't have anyone to defend him, really. At most, they have bodies they can throw, like in Aiton, but Ayton's not a good defender. I think that Aiton is having a great series overall, and they're relying on him for a huge majority of their offense. He had 22 points and 11 rebounds today, which is good, but it's not good enough. I just don't think that the Suns have enough firepower, especially if Chris Paul is out of the lineup, and especially if the role players aren't really pitching in, because I think that a majority of what made this Phoenix Suns so good was how well their role players played. So Jay Crowder, Mikhail Bridges, even guys off the bench, Cam Johnson, and Cameron Payne, for the most part, who's shown out in this playoff series, even with his contributions, they still haven't found ways to really win games. And again, this is huge parts and part of Chris Paul but you know guys like Ayton defensively need to step up and a guy like Booker who shot six for 19 today that's unacceptable there's no way the Suns are going to have a chance to win if all three of their great players being Booker Ayton, and Chris Paul they all have to compete offensively and defensively and the role players have to show out everyone kind of let them down today except for Cameron Payne
2: You know, you mentioned Devin Booker struggling today. I thought KCP, who ultimately left this game injured, and I hope he's okay. Apparently it's a thigh contusion is what the Lakers officially said, but it almost looked like he was grasping his knee. I really hope he's all right because that guy plays his ass off every night. He sprints all over the court, and you can't judge him by whatever he's shooting in a given game because for instance, last game, he did not even score, and he led the team in plus minus. That's in large part because KCP is one of the best lock and trail defenders Defenders in the NBA. And for those of you who don't know what lock and trail technique is, it's a way to guard someone off ball who is running around screens. So think of like a classic shooter, like Reggie Miller or Ray Allen. They're running around off screens, right? Devin Booker does this quite a bit. What KCP is a master of doing is trailing them, kind of getting himself skinny through screens, and using a technique where he's going to be on their hips so that they just don't have space once they catch the ball to launch a shot. And sometimes he denies them the ball altogether. So he's an invaluable defender. And the other thing is, you know, we, we talk about Chris Paul. There's a reason that Anu and I, when we did our, our rankings of players for this season's playoffs, both Anushan and I did not have Chris Paul in our top 10. And it's not because we don't think that he's a top 10 caliber player. When he's on, he's incredible. I mean, he controls the game like few have ever done. He's the point god. But his inability to stay healthy and not just pick up some random nick here or there and then find himself missing games or playing subpar, it's kind of incredible. So I hope he gets healthy. I hope we still see
0: some of them in the series, but it sucks that he's already so limited. So AC, you made the point earlier about how you feel the Suns need to double Anthony Davis. Well, I 100% agree. That absolutely needs to happen. The man had two back-to-back 30 and 10 games on you. So clearly what you're doing right now is not working. You need to put more attention on him. And let's be real. The Lakers aren't shooting well. On the series, they're 28.8% from beyond the arc. 44.2 in general.
2: And that's not, that's even deceiving because a lot of that is held up by LeBron shooting 43.8% from three. But like, LeBron is not the guy that is going to break a double two. They're
0: not going to leave LeBron to double AD. Yeah.
2: They're leaving like these other role players.
0: Yeah. I mean, look at the role players. Kyle Kuzma, 0% from beyond the arc. Wes Matthews, 0% from beyond the arc. Yeah. continuous Coral Pope, 9.1%. Yeah.
2: It's bad. I mean, they it's like historically bad right now and that's what's crazy they're up 2-1 and they've been turning the ball over too they're just that good defensively and that's scary for the whole NBA it's like they ever just make some shots and they can go to their best lineups and if LeBron has some help they're so
0: good defensively they could just win on that most nights alone and when you think about you know second round I don't think they'll have too much of an issue so come conference finals or finals should they make it that far I feel a lot of these issues that they're facing right now is just because they need to get that chemistry a little bit better and build confidence in their shots again. All right, so why don't we transition from L.A.'s showtime to the L.A.'s oh-no time. (laughs) (laughs) The Clippers right now are down 0-2 in their series with the Mavericks with tomorrow night's game in Dallas with likely a full crowd. I don't know, guys. I'm starting to worry a little bit about the Clippers. I mean, it, it, you can't even write this script, right?
2: The basketball gods must really exist. Because here you have a team that intentionally lost to two of the worst teams in the NBA, in the Houston Rockets and the Oklahoma City Thunder. Two teams who are actually trying to tank. They lost the first game so they could avoid playing the Lakers in the first round. And then they lost the second game so they could avoid playing the Lakers in the second round, right? <laughs> <laughs> so they're all over the other side of the bracket now. And now they're facing a Dallas team who they should know can give them problems because injured lashes took them to six. But I still think we all thought, you know what, this is a Clippers squad that has a lot more talent. They should win out. And by the way, they still may win out. That's possible. But they've only seen so far, this is an absolute embarrassment. They lost both games at home. Now granted, in their best days, the Clippers don't have a great home court advantage. And it doesn't help that right now, they're the only one in an NBA that has like 6,000 cardboard cutouts in the entire bottom, <laughs> bottom bowl. And I honestly do not understand why they do that because it's just like the funniest thing that the Clippers – have all these cardboard cutout fans, they're right? that desperate for fans, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a pretty, a pretty accurate record.
1: representation of their actual fan base, <laughs> yeah,
2: right. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of loyal Clipper fans who unfortunately have suffered for a long time, but it's just like the joke just writes itself right. <laughs> and then now they're going, as you know, so we said, to Dallas, a place that we all know doesn't give three shits about mask mandates or COVID protocols or anything like that. So it's going to be a packed house, they're going to be feeling themselves. This Clippers team has not played together in a Royal arena yet, right? Because last season, this particular squad played in the bubble. So we don't even know how they're going to play. And if there's any team that I have no faith in of actually having some sort of resolve and overcoming the obstacles that come in a season, it's this Clippers team that just last year choked a 3-1 lead away in which they blew double-digit leads in the second half of all three games, 5, 6, and 7.
1: There are two takeaways from this. One, if Steve Ballmer had hair, he'd be ripping it out right now. And two, they absolutely suck against European players. They can't deal with Jokic. They can't deal with Dodgers. It's just absolutely incredible to watch. And it's just so funny to me.
0: I mentioned body language earlier when talking about LeBron James, but have you seen the body language of the Los Angeles Clippers? They clearly are just not together. Well, Rondo was yelling at people.
2: I mean, he it's, was yelling at Ty Lue. He was just not happy. I mean, for some reason they got Rondo and they're playing him. Sometimes,
0: and then other times, they're not even closing with him, so I don't know what's going on with the rotations right now. And then on the flip side, you look at the Mavericks, they seem together, and there is this natural chemistry that they have, and when you look at their leader, he just looks like he's having a good time, and that really bled into the role players playing exceedingly well in the first two games on the road. So recently, also, there's like a
2: galvanizing effect of having a player that you kind of get behind. And Kawhi, for as great as he
0: is, he's never had that quality about him. Exactly. Kawhi is their best player, but he's not a leader. So, okay, the second best player, usually the leader. Well, Paul George is known for many things, many interests, you know, master fisherman. <laughs> <Paul> <laughs> George. But, you know, being a leader is not really one of them. So... Who's the heart and soul of that team? Is it their coach who was their assistant coach who replaced the coach that they ran out of town? Who's now, by the way, you know, in a series in which his team, the Sixers, are
2: dominating, uh, while Ty Lu is having a really poor series. And I, I'll say this. When I look at why the Clippers are struggling, a lot of people are saying, well, Doncic is outplaying their guys. I actually think that if you actually look at it statistically, Kawhi and Paul George are having pretty solid series. I mean, Kawhi just dropped 41 points. You know, Paul George has had... Moments where he hasn't looked his best, but
0: overall is playing well. On the series, Paul George has a true shooting percent of 58.6 and a effective field goal percentage of 53.8. Whereas Kawhi Leonard, 65.2 and 59.3 respectively. So these guys aren't having bad series. You know, Skip Bayless is being cute on TV saying, oh, thanks a lot, Pandemic P. That's just just weak scapegoating. It's really not Paul George's fault. Look, I, I love the meme that, Paul George has become, but you got to give the man credit where it's due. He's been playing very well in this series. So when I when I actually think about what is wrong with their team,
2: I think it's fundamentally an issue about defense, right? I and mean, maybe that's the obvious answer because they've conceded what seems like an offensive rating of 400 something. <laughs> it's, just, it's been that bad. That's how much how easily the Mavericks have scored on them. But there's a couple specific things that are wrong with their defense that are creating all these problems. The first is, and I mentioned this in our last pod, Ty Lu always, his fallback when things go wrong is more offense, right? Better spacing. Now, the Clippers have some big men on the roster. They have Ivica Chizoubaks. They have Serge Ibaka. And they're not going with either of them. Instead, they're going with Marcus Morris. They closed last game with Nick Batum at the five. I mean, that's great spacing, but when you're having to stop a guy who can get to the paint at will when he wants to, it's a problem, right? The other problem, though, is schematically they're kind of lost. In the first game, they were trying to send all these weird traps. Not even trap I would call it a really soft double. And Luca read it every time and, and he was getting guys easy looks. And he still dropped 30 on them. Game two, they went back to what they did last year, which is switching heavily against him. But it was an easy switch, a lazy switch, in my opinion. And that meant that all Luka had to do was find the guy that was switching. So he could have Kawhi Leonard on him, and as long as Patrick Bellley's man sets the pick, he would get Patrick Bell on him. And this guy was sunning Patrick Bell He was talking trash to him. He was, you know, driving right to the hoop and finishing. And the third thing is execution. The amount of mistakes the Clippers made, you might think, okay, Luka Doncic creates mistakes for the opposing team. Of course he does. He's that great. He's truly an incredible savant level offensive player. But they're making a lot of unforced errors. Two men rotating the same guy or a roller going to the rim and nobody from either wing doing anything and both kind of pointing at each other to stop the roll. It was an easy dunk. They're making so many mistakes that is not even creating against them. So that shows me that this is a team that doesn't have that camaraderie, that chemistry, the time together, and had a coach in entirely that didn't emphasize any of these things, kind of like you did in Cleveland. In Cleveland, they were all offense-focused, and then when they tried to turn it on in the playoffs against a really good team like Golden State, they couldn't. Obviously, they had the greatest personnel to do that. These guys actually have good personnel, but it doesn't have the camaraderie
0: to get it done in the time. You mentioned the offensive rating of the Mavericks. Well, it's not quite 400. You're close. It's at (laughs) 100 131.6 on the series. Which would be like leading the entire league or the history of the NBA. Which is phenomenal. You also mentioned Marcus Morris. In addition to his defensive deficiencies, he hasn't been having a good series offensively either. He's shooting 18.2 from beyond the arc, 29.4 from the field as a whole, and actually even 25 from the charity stripe. So shots are just not falling for him. He's not having a very good series.
2: And remind me, honestly, is this the guy that got a four-year, $64 million deal in the offseason? Should have paid him a veteran's minimum, apparently. Like, like, yeah, like Markeith, who was apparently, you know, (laughs) the Clippers are paying Markeith to play for the Lakers. And let's not even mention Luke Kennard, who's not played one minute in this series, despite also getting a four-year, $64 million deal.
0: You also mentioned Ty his playoff history, and how he's always been very offense-first. Now he has a bunch of pieces, but he doesn't have that galvanizing leader. Because if you look at what Ty Lue was able to do with those Cleveland teams back in the day, he was able to do a lot more with a lot less. And yes, he had an all-time great in LeBron, but LeBron is more than just the player; he's also the leader. I mean, he makes Matthew Dellavedova into some like big name during a series because he's just able to get the most out of Matthew Dellavedova. That's a good point. He, he made J.R. Smith a NBA champion. He, he got Dwight. Howard Reg like he's able to teach people what it takes to win. So, I feel like the lack of a true leader and alpha the person that everyone on that team goes to for the Clippers is extraordinarily detrimental and perhaps why they've been struggling so much in not just this playoffs but even last playoffs.
1: You know, AC, you mentioned something before we started recording, and that was just how similar Luka Doncic is to LeBron James, even in the ways that they play and both struggle from the free throw line, even to like those small little details. And also, you make a great point about how LeBron James is such a galvanizing leader for all of his teammates especially going into the playoffs when realistically it's the Mavs who have something to prove right they're the guys who are the underdogs in this series they're going up against a champion in Kawhi Leonard but you can see that it kind of looks the other way where it looks like the Clippers are under this immense amount of pressure and the Mavericks are just having fun out there they're playing this like any other regular season game and one thing I loved about watching Luka Jontic after the game finished in his post-game interview he just said it's the playoffs it's fun and he's just having a good time like that to me it just shows how much he loves the game of basketball and I just couldn't be more of a fan of him and I'm really excited to see how they play in game three and to be honest I'm very scared to see what's going to happen to the Clippers
0: to your point about how Luka Doncic has ignited his team, you know, you have guys like Hardaway, right? Or even Brunson, Maxi Kleba. They're having career highs in true shooting percentage and effective field goal percentage above 80%. Josh Richardson is at 759 This is a guy who last year on my team, I was like, God damn, he, he's not really playing well in the playoffs. So that just shows his impact as a creator but it also is a point of concern for me because these guys are definitely overachieving on the series they're at 50 from beyond the arc guys like Hardaway is at 64.7 from beyond the arc Cleva wow. seventy five, Finney Jeez. Smith fifty five point six, Porzingis forty four. So
2: there should be a regression to the means. We're
1: saying,
0: yeah, it, it it definitely seems like they are overachieved. But the the only thing I'll say, if there was a negative to bring up for Luca's play in this series, it's that he's been shooting an abysmal forty two point nine from the free throw.
2: Yeah, so. Also, you brought up the maybe overachieving shooting of this Dallas Mavericks team. So when I'm thinking about how the Clippers can come back in this series, one thing is if that shooting luck changes even a little bit, the outcomes of these games could be different, right? So that's one thing they have going for them. But if you guys were to design a defense to try to stop what the Mavericks are doing, given the Clippers personnel, what would you do? What are some of the changes you'd make? Whether it's rotations, schemes, whatever, what would you guys do here to, to try to slow down this Mavericks offense? and luca in particular
1: for starters you cannot switch in any circumstance especially when well i wouldn't say any circumstance but especially when luca has the ball because like we said similar to lebron he's one of the best switch hunters in the nba and he's absolutely torching pat bev so we can't get into situations like that so what i would do is probably employ maybe like a, a soft hedge and a show and recover sort of scheme Now, the Clippers don't really have a lot of bigs who are that quick at best. You can probably employ Serge Ibaka, who's been suffering with some injury concerns, but he's probably your best bet for a guy to do a little bit of show and recover and and drop. But it's going to be really hard to deal with playing against Luka Doncic because one thing you can't also do is you can't leave the corners. You can't get a guy to tag the role men because, again, maybe it is a bit of overachieving from the Maverick shooters, but I wouldn't just give them free corner three pointers if you're trying to help off of those corners so it's going to be really difficult I'm not sure what kind of scheme to employ but probably do as many different things as possible whether it be like a full court press for a little bit of the game or even extended pressure from your your guard just to pick Luca up and tire him out a little bit throw different zone looks at them even for a couple of possessions doesn't have to be for multiple possessions and maybe one or two just to throw off the rhythm of the offense for the Mavericks because right now they look like a well-oiled machine and it's it's almost impossible to stop
0: yeah, I definitely agree with that. I agree with putting Ibaka. I mean, he's only played 18 minutes in this entire series so far. And yeah, maybe it's because of injuries. But honestly, I think you gotta bench Marcus Morris, because you're not getting any good minutes out of him, neither offensively nor defensively. So I would probably say more Ibaka minutes, or even Zubac, because he's a good defender.
2: Yeah, I think they're overreacting a little bit to the times where Zubak got beaten really badly in switches. Because obviously, there's going to be times where Luka, you know, being a guard or, or wing, however you want to classify him, is just going to just blow right by someone like beat Zubak. But I think Zubak the numbers all show that when he's on the floor, the Clippers are significantly better defensively. So that's one thing you can do is, is just play more of him and more of Ibaka, more conventional bigs. The other thing I was considering... In terms of just rotation-wise, is right now, Reggie Jackson's been absolutely terrible. Patrick Beverly is being hunted by Luca in these schemes and you know, doesn't give you enough offenses that he has to play. And Rondo clearly don't trust him enough because they're not closing games with him. So maybe you just ditch all the point guards and kind of go with a much more switchable lineup where maybe you're playing you know, more of Terrence Mann, who I think has been criminally underused in this series and the flashes he showed in game two demonstrate his value as an athletic player who can hit threes and is a little bit more size so you can switch a little bit and then from a schematic perspective i think you can switch when luca is playing but it's got to be a smart switch it can't be an easy switch it can't be oh i'm going to pick whoever i want i'm going to switch every single time there's got to be some variation on that like if it's paul george and Kawhi, you can switch it for instance right and that's why if you're going to play a switch scheme which is what the clippers prefer to do we really got to have five switchable guys out there. And they can't get to five without playing Marcus Morris. So either he's going to play better or they have to abandon this scheme altogether. I still think that something like switching is better than hedging and recovering or certainly better than any kind of double or trap because he's just too good of a passer. And if Luca is getting 30 anyway and getting all the assists, I'd rather still make him make some hard shots. He made some really tough shots over Paul George, over Kawhi at points in this game. I don't know if that'll last over the rest of this series. So I would continue some sort of a switching style scheme because they have too many shooters almost not to and he's too good of a passer. I would just put better lineups out there that can switch and just hope that Marcus Morris plays better because also he's right, he's been terrible. But if you don't play him, I don't know how you can even run a switch scheme. You have to play something different.
1: To your point, AC, Paul George wouldn't call that a tough shot. He'd call it a bad shot, but I digress. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, Paul. Good point. Paul George. So... We're now sitting here in DEFCON 4, I don't know, the most extreme sort of <laughs> danger for this franchise, the Clippers had mortgaged their entire future to get this supposed super team of Kawhi Leonard and Paul George on their team. Not only can Kawhi Leonard leave in the offseason, and if you want to know where you might go, check out our last pod where Ross Sweet makes an interesting pitch. But if he leaves and they're bad, they don't have their picks for years to come between the picks they traded away and the ones that they gave away swap rights to. The Thunder have basically own their picks for the next several years. So this is a huge problem. And there's a lot of pressure on this franchise right now. But I think we all agree here that they're the more talented team. So, guys, who is going to wind
0: up winning this series and in how many games? I will test the basketball gods and I will say Mavericks in six. Just because I'm trying to will it into existence, that is an Uswe Dramas prediction. Mavs in six. knock kind of on
1: Yeah. See, a big part of me wanted to say it's going to be a sweep by the Mavs, but I just don't think it's realistic to have that expectation. I do think Kawhi and Paul George are good enough, and the rest of the team, obviously, but those who in particular are good enough to not get swept. But I honestly, just watching the way Luka Doncic has played this series, and especially the rest of the Mavs, I I just don't see them losing, to be honest with you. So I'm going to say Mavs in five.
2: Well, if that happens, then our co-host, Eric, will be very happy because he made, I call it a hot take when he said Mavs in five, if Porzingis plays well, or otherwise Mavs in six. I mean, as you said, it's even possible it could be Mavs in four. (laughs) So it's kind of crazy. Very possible. I I still look at this series and I just can't get over the fact that I just feel like the Clippers are significantly more talented. And at some point, Tim Hardaway isn't going to make every single damn shot he takes. Same with Kleba and all the other guys who are just red hot right now. And then I wonder if that happens. What can the Mavericks really do to stop the Clippers' elite offense? Because the Clippers have been scoring pretty easily in, in both of these games. I don't think there's anything they can do to stop that from happening. So I'm going to go with a crazy comeback where these Clippers wind up winning in seven. I don't want it to happen. I hope it doesn't happen. Oh. I'm rooting strongly against it happening, but... I think there's a world in which it does happen, and in that world, I'm going to
0: look like a genius, so I'm going for it. <laughs> All time, the team that has lost the first two games at home have had a 4-27 and record for the series, so odds aren't looking good for them. So actually, guys, if I may, before we move on, I do want to follow up on my pitch to Kawhi from last week. Howdy how, this is Usui. Things aren't looking so good for you, man. You've been playing out of your mind, and hey, even Pandemic P's been playing well. But that kid Luca, man, Luca Magic, you're not gonna be able to beat him in the West? You think you're gonna beat him with this Clippers team? All right, so you get past these guys. Then what? You're gonna get your ass kicked by the Lakers? So for the second season in a row, you're gonna allow yourself to get sunned by the Lakers? Nah. Look, man, whether it's this series or the Lakers series, somebody is gonna rain on your parade. But you know where it doesn't rain? (laughs) Oh God, here it comes again. Philadelphia. Because it's always sunny in Philadelphia.
2: Oh boy. Come to the Knicks, dude. Come to the Knicks. It rains here. Oh, it rains in Philadelphia as well.
0: Uh, Because I hear it's uh, always sunny. Listen, listen. (laughs) It's the craziest thing ever. Listen, you're just jealous that no one says, oh, it's always sunny in New York. No, listen. It's always sunny in Philadelphia because even when it rains, the sun's out because there's so much beauty and life in the city of
1: Philadelphia brotherly love, all right? There's lots of popcorn, too. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Popcorn, snowballs, middle fingers, you name it. I was when I were
2: actually at the game two of the Sixers series, which we don't have time to talk about today. But uh, we actually saw the popcorn being poured, and they actually had a a live announcement
0: on the thing. They had a live announcement saying, fans, please remember not to throw anything toward or at the court. Doing so will have you ejected. Yeah.
1: So from one franchise throwing popcorn to another that spits, we have to talk about the New York Knicks. And that was a rhyme. Unintentional. But the Atlanta Hawks and the Knicks series is really interesting, especially with the Knicks winning game two. Go New York, go New York, go go New
2: York, go New York, go.
1: (laughs) AC, your fans went absolutely insane. And game three is right around the corner. What do you guys think? I
2: mean, we can't talk about this series before first talking about the fans Madison Square Garden. I mean, I'm a Knicks fan, so obviously I'm biased. But there is just some kind of electricity in that place, that building. It could be the old school organ right? It's the way the lighting is. It's the way the fans chant. (laughs) They were chanting stuff like, (laughs) like Trey is balding and fuck (laughs) Trey Young. I mean, and then it was so loud that I genuinely worried that TNT would have an FCC violation (laughs) because of the way you could just hear the F-bombs pouring through the screen. I mean, it was incredible. And then afterward, they're partying in the streets like they won the NBA championship. And I get it. If you're not from New York, you might be thinking these guys are overreacting. What you have to understand is basketball is part of the fabric of New York, right? And a lot of guys in the NBA, by the way, they weren't around to see the Knicks teams of the 90s that were dominant at that time. And they weren't even like real genuine title contenders. They won a two finals in the 90s, but they were never the best team or anything like that. But that blue collar mentality, having a competitive team that's in the playoffs, the city just gets behind it. Because unlike, say, baseball, where... There's obviously more Yankees fans than Mets fans, but there's plenty of Mets fans. And similar with, if you take football, there's more Giants fans than Jets fans, but there's plenty of Jets fans. When it comes to basketball, the vast majority of people in New York are Knicks fans. And we, something we've said over and over again in this podcast. And I think the way that this fan base reacted and the way that just annoys, Obi Toppin said that you can feel the ground shaking in the game. If we can notice that from the TV screen, players notice it around the league too, Right. And this is a franchise that if they're now, number one, by going to the playoffs, showing a level of competency, and number two, they're showing what New York can do when it's behind a competent basketball team, somebody's going to want to come play here that... You know, It was something that we haven't really been able to say for the last 20 years, besides maybe Carmelo Anthony, that a real star player wanted to come to New York City and play for our team.
1: There's one thing that as a basketball fan, I need to do to experience true basketball fandom, and that is watch a game in the Garden. Regardless of it being just a playoff game or even a regular season game, but that is an experience that I think every basketball fan needs to have, because the Garden is, by all accounts, the best arena in NBA basketball. Not just NBA basketball, but just bit arena in general in terms of sports. It's it's a fantastic place. The fans, like even from watching from my TV, right? I can hear them so loud. The energy in the garden is so vibrant and radiant. It's a place that is starved for good basketball because like you said, like for years the Knicks have been super incompetent and, you know, just kind of an ongoing joke in the NBA. But also we said something as well that is very true, like the NBA is probably at its best when the Knicks are relevant and the Knicks are good. And I think this is amazing for the NBA as a whole. And and as a fan, like it, it reminds me so much of of my fan base the Toronto Raptors who are very passionate in their own right. But New York Knicks fans, I mean, they have a much longer history than my fan base does. And they've had gone through a much longer tenure of just not being great. So like fans like yourselves and people who have been starved of, you know, actual good basketball have all reason to celebrate you know what i mean like yes on the the outside it looks kind of silly but like it must mean the world to them right so just fantastic to see and you know to be honest i never thought i'd be like rooting for the knicks but I, I just love what you guys are doing there so i'm a fan for sure
0: i mean i love every aspect of the knicks fans reactions to every game and i love after the game they were chanting we want brooklyn because you know to an outsider they might They're they're being arrogant. They're overreacting and thinking that the Knicks actually have a chance against Brooklyn. It's not about that. It's, It's about the fact that the Knicks were a joke for a long time. Even when they tried to tank to get Zion or any other good picks, they would have some terrible luck. Then they clear out all the space so they could get KD and Kyrie. And they say, you know what? No, we want to go to Brooklyn. And they're saying how Brooklyn is truly New York. And it's just like for New York fans to see that, that's just like such a like disrespect. And the Nets have always been like the little brother of the area. right? even back when they were in Long Island and then they go to New Jersey and now they're in Brooklyn. For the New York Knicks to be where they are right now To have won a game in the playoffs with a competent team against a team that has this ultra-talented young superstar in Trey Young, to claw your way back and beat them in the garden, it means so much to the area. And yes, I'm a Sixers fan, but for me as someone living in this area, it means a lot too because I want to see the Knicks do well.
2: So also you mentioned Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant not coming to the Knicks and choosing the Nets. In fact, Durant even said that it wasn't cool to be part of the Knicks, whatever cool means. And I get it. The Knicks have sucked for 20 years. I have no ill will toward anyone who decided that they didn't want to join a dumpster fire of an organization. But just look at the reaction that the Knicks got for winning one game. In the playoffs versus the way the city has reacted towards the Nets, who are the overwhelming title favorites this year and who probably will hoist the championship in one of the next few years for the city of New York. No one cares. And that's the thing. So I wonder if Kevin Durant and, you know, wherever he's sitting in his ivory tower tweeting.
0: Porcelain (laughs) throne.
2: In his porcelain throne. I wonder if he's looking at that game that took place as one of himself man if Kyra and I went to New York we'd probably still win we still we'll still have overwhelming talent
1: and you'd
0: actually be liked
2: but you know there's a chance to become a legend in that in this city that doesn't exist when you do it for the Nets as it is if you did it for the Knicks
0: yeah, I mean, being from this area, I haven't seen much Nets news at all. It's all focused on the Knicks.
2: The, the Nets news is mostly national, right? And we're actually originally from New Jersey, where the Nets live for a long time. And we do know Nets fans. I know I rib Nets fans all the time about... There's only five of them, but they, they exist. This is a difference. It's, it's not Yankees versus Mets. It's not Giants versus Jets. It's a chasm between the two. And that could change over time, but right now there's a chasm. And winning for this franchise that has suffered so much and and really a lot of self inflicted but still the fans have suffered it means everything
1: so let's talk a little bit about the series itself because there's a lot of interesting dynamics between the atlanta Hawks and the new york knicks because on one end you have a team that is probably on paper more talented but then you have another team that is very hard-nosed very grind heavy so It's an interesting dynamic between the two teams, and Tom Thibodeau has done a lot of things in this series to actually help them get that game to win. So I want to talk a little bit to you, AC, in particular. Like, What have you seen in this series that has really shown out to you?
2: Well, my first thought, before I even get to the exact things that the Hawks are doing, is that in many ways, Trey Young reminds me so much of Reggie Miller. Not that his game is similar, but... Here you have a guy who's kind of slight of frame. He's lighting up the guard and he's talking trash to Spike Lee, the same Spike Lee that I grew up 20 years ago or 25 years ago watching Reggie and him go back and forth against each other. And then he's hitting the dagger shot and breaking Knicks fans' hearts and the entire arena is booing him. They don't like that he flops. The mayor of New York City is calling him out for flopping. The whole thing is just, it's so classic. But I I 100% agree with you that overall the Hawks are the more talented team. They just have way more ways of scoring. And Trey Young himself is a very difficult guy to cover. You almost have to kind of trap him a little bit or get the ball out of his hands, but he's good enough of a ball handler. that sometimes he just splits the trap. He finds ways to just hold the dribble and kind of slink around the screen, get outside the outside leg of the guy coming to put pressure on him. If it's say it's a hard hedge. And then when he's going towards the rim, wherever you can help from, he's actually a really good passer. So he is a problem. And I think in game two, you saw some adjustments that the Knicks ran. I think they were a little bit tighter in who they were helping off of. But one of the problems against the Hawks is they just have weapons everywhere, right? Bogdanovich can go off on you. John Collins, who really didn't play much due to foul trouble last game, he can go off. And given series. Clint Capella, apart from being you know a very good rebounder and shot blocker, is one of the best lob-catching big men in the NBA. And he has amazing chemistry with Trey Young. You know, Gallinari can get hot randomly. It hasn't quite happened yet, but it could totally happen. So it's difficult to provide help. And so he has compromised our defense more than I even expected it to. I'm curious, Anu, what have you seen from the Knicks on the offensive side? Because clearly the Knicks are not the offensive team that the Hawks are. But I didn't quite expect Julius Randle to struggle as much as he has in the first two games.
1: Yeah, And it's interesting that you say that because even before the series started, I had already predicted, maybe not to the point that Randall's struggling this much, but I definitely thought this was going to be a difficult series for him because of the amount of bodies that the Hawks are able to employ. And the Hawks are one of the rare teams that have an abundance of good wing players. Now, maybe they're not great wing players, nor are they all great defenders. But one thing that you can't discount and you can't teach is size and height. Thank okay. So you have a bunch of guys you can employ and throw at Randall who may not be great defenders like Adeno Gallinari, Kevin Herter, just guys of that nature. But then you have guys like DeAndre Hunter who are great defenders and who are causing problems. And another thing that I noticed about the Hawks is that they're employing a similar strategy that the Miami Heat and my Toronto Raptors of old did against Giannis where they would wall up against him. Now, Julius Randall isn't a slash only player. He's actually a very good playmaker and a good jump shooter but he's been forced to take a lot of these kind of long mid-range twos, which are statistically speaking, the worst shots you can take in basketball. And he's not getting them free looks. These are like kind of difficult shots, kind of fade away, leaner type shots. And they're not clean looks. So I think in those regards, the Hawks have done a great job of making Julius Randle into a pass-first player. And they've done a good job at sort of making it hard for him to just get to where he's comfortable, which is right inside the paint. That being said, I do think the Knicks role player have really stepped up in game one we saw it from Alec Burks even though they didn't manage to win the game Alec Burks still had a very good showing Taj Gibson in game two played very well he provided a lot of energy off the bench he logged in pretty heavy minutes he got a lot of rebounds for them especially offensive rebounds which are very critical and key when possessions count in the playoffs and a guy like Derrick Rose who has just been absolutely phenomenal so I, I do think the Knicks have an abundance of options still, even when Randall isn't necessarily going to be providing the sort of contributions that he did in the regular season. But again, I also think it's, just, it's to be expected because, hey, like this is the playoffs. Teams are going to start scheming against you. So you got to be prepared for it.
0: Anu, you mentioned that Julius Randle's mid-range game hasn't been really hitting too much. He's one of 14 from the mid-range. Good Lord. Yeah, 7.1%. That's kind of what the eye test is shown too, but I didn't realize he only made one mid-range yeah. jumper so far. And that's 35.9% of his shots are coming from that area. But that's actually a general trend I've, I noticed when looking at the shot charts of the Knicks versus the Hawks. The Knicks are primarily playing inside the three-point line, only 24.5% from beyond the arc.
2: Wait, is that the percentage there of it's shots they're taking or- It's the, the, the distribution. The distribution. The
0: sh- and right? what are they converting it at? 34.8. 34% of their shots are within like five feet. And then otherwise, another large portion of the distribution is 19.1% of the distribution is in that mid-range between the-
2: Pain and the three-point
0: line. Yeah, exactly. But then another interesting thing on the defensive end for the Knicks to keep an eye on is that offensively, 46.5% of the shots that Trey Young takes is in the paint, in the high key area, and he's hitting them at a 55% clip. That's floater range. Yeah, right? in floater So range. he
2: is killing the Knicks on those floaters. Yep. I mean, it's really, really annoying when you're rooting against him because the guy will slide over. Noel is really good at sliding over when someone's driving like that. And he just stops before Noel
0: and just hits a floater right over top of him even closer to the rim he's good at finishing because he's three of five from there you can't even collapse on him too much because he's a good passer so he could kick it out or if you try to stop him from driving he's 50 percent from beyond the arc
2: mostly above the break threes too right he's not like exactly he's not corner threes. he's taking the much more difficult much further yeah. threes above the break
0: and that's about 23.3 percent of his repertoire
2: it's about a quarter of his shots
0: Basically. And in all three levels, he's shooting pretty well. I mean, in the mid range, he's 37.5. Then again, he's a tiny guy. So I don't really expect him to be scoring too much in that area. But it just feels like from anywhere in the court, he can score despite facing an incredible defensive team in the Knicks. So that goes to the point that I want to make, which is the Knicks really need to get shooting. Moving forward, they really need to improve on their on their spacing because these guys are just not hitting shots. And it I feel like this would be a different series. Maybe even they would be up 2-0 if they shot a little bit better.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean that's the fundamental problem with the Knicks, right? They're an elite defensive team and a below average offensive team. That way they're a lot like the Lakers, except the Lakers have lineups where they could be amazing offensively. They just Willingly choose not to go there sometimes. The thing with the Knicks, I think they need that to beat the Hawks. They need their shots to fall. They barely won game two on the strength of their defense, but you're not going to be able to beat a team like the Hawks. The Hawks are going to get to 110 plus points a couple times in a series. And I just don't know. I and mean, this was always why I was, despite being a Knicks fan, I was low on the Knicks prospects in the playoffs. I just don't know they can get to 110 points. They need Randall to play better. One of the guys, though, and Anushan, you mentioned this, that has kind of saved this team a little bit so far has been derrick rose because derrick rose has given them a huge spark he started the second half of last game in place of elfrid payton something that basically every knicks fan in existence has been clamoring for is taking Alfred payton a complete non-threat as a shooter off the floor But I think even in our wildest dreams, no Nick Fennig thought that we were getting some version of like, almost like a borderline all-star level this guy's playing at right now. And he has been by far, not only our best creator in the playoffs, but also our best and most consistent clutch player. It seems like every time we need a basket, he's the guy who gets it for us. And he's getting with his own floaters, not quite Trey Young level efficient, but he's doing it. From there, he's getting to the rim. He's hitting threes and has big clutch ones. So overall, he's been fantastic. And I think... We maybe need to up his minutes a bit, honestly. I think maybe we go to two-point guards, and him and Quickly can both play together as well. So that's another thing I would like to see more of because we need his offense.
0: Yeah, Derek Rose is playing 38.2 minutes per game, averaging 21.5 with a plus-minus of 7.5. He has not missed from the free throw line. He's 42.9 from beyond the arc and 45.9 in the field. This is quality minutes you're getting for this guy who we basically picked off this
2: crap heap right i mean he's a guy who was one time the youngest MVP in, in nba history and then kind of went totally opposite way and was basically just kind of being passed around the league and all of a sudden now we have a guy who's making an impact on on a playoff series
0: yeah and i also feel like quickly really needs to get more minutes too because he has shown that he can hit the three he's shooting 40 percent above the break so you know that's a guy that definitely needs minutes and i think
2: well that's been the story of our season for some reason quickly just can't get enough minutes and I don't think he's some huge defensive liability at least he's not great but no young guard is but what we need his offense more than he'll hurt our defense
0: and well you hope that if Tibbs finally makes the move and benches Peyton in favor of Rose that the backup minutes that were assigned to Rose would now come to quickly I would feel a lot more comfortable watching that I, I agree
1: Yeah, and to your point about both Rose and Quickly, I'll quickly, (laughs) quickly go over (laughs) a quickly. He's actually a very good three-point shooter. Last game didn't really indicate that, and I guess also the minutes he was allotted wasn't really great. He only had 15 minutes last game, but... They do, like AC said, they need floor spacing in order to win this series. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to because they can't just rely on, quite honestly, a fourth quarter collapse by the Atlanta Hawks, who just went completely cold down the stretch, missing wide open jumpers. I don't think that's going to be the way that they're going to win this series, and they need contributions from everyone else. So, quickly, definitely deserves to get more minutes. And I think he plays great with Derrick Rose as well. Now, speaking of Derrick Rose, and this might be more biased a little bit, but I, I think it's that sort of old playoff experience that he's had from his past. I mean, Darius is a guy who's gone through a ton of adversity throughout his career, dealing with almost a career-ending injury and he took so much time to come back and once he was back he was never the same player right so now we're seeing sort of spurts of an old derrick Rose, but he's also molded himself into like a new kind of player he's become a better jump shooter he's good at creating off the dribble for himself he is a pretty above average playmaker i wouldn't say he's a great playmaker but he can definitely get a couple of assists per game so he's a guy who sort of alleviated that i guess role from julius Randle of kind of burdening everything and taking everything on himself and that's good because you need your role players and your veterans to teach guys who haven't been in that spot before how to play and how to proceed. So I think Derrick Rose has done a great job stepping up to the plate. And I'm very excited to see how he plays in game three, because that's going to be a very pivotal game that can swing the series.
0: You also mentioned the Atlanta Hawks shooting. I feel like game three is going to be probably the toughest the Knicks have had so far, because going back to the ATL, the role players are going to feel a lot more comfortable. They have a lot of momentum behind their lead. dropping 30 points in back-to-back games. There'll be a lot of energy in the building. And I don't expect Bogdan Bogdanovich to have 27.3% from beyond the arc. Like that's how he's been so far in this series. Kevin Hurd at 28.6% from beyond the arc. Gallinari, 18.8. So I definitely expect a turnaround when they are at home, when they're comfortable with their fans, not the crazy New York. I, I really think that the New York fans definitely had a big impact on their role players not shooting as well as they usually do. So I don't know. I feel like this is going to be a very tough game for the knicks
1: right and and to your point also these guys are, are very good shooters like they're no slouches bogdanovich gallinari herder they're all very good three-point shooters and on top of that i don't think they can bank on john collins not playing playing only 15 minutes being in foul trouble and he's a guy who's a very good defender in his own right an extremely good athlete another guy who can put a body on, on randall and just cause disruption in general so i i think it's going to be a very close game but it's going to be a very hard
2: so that begs the question then, guys, who do you think is going to actually win this series? You know, we're 1-1 now going into Atlanta. They've stolen home court advantage. How do you predict this, play- this year is going to go?
0: I would probably say a safe bet would be Hawks in six. But man, what I would do for like game seven in the garden. And if it's game seven in the garden, I want to give it to my brother's Knicks.
1: Yeah, for me, I'm somewhat with us because like, I think there's a safe bet you can make with the Hawks at six, but I actually think it might be more realistic to say this is going to be a seven game series because I, I just think that that grit and grind from New York, it can push a team like the Hawks who, while are very offensively talented, they're still young and inexperienced. And I think that could play a huge factor. So I'm actually going to say Hawks in seven, but I mean, it's really open to anyone winning at, at, at that seventh mark.
2: Something just occurred to me as you were were speaking about experience for the Hawks. They did have Rondo on this roster, remember? And somehow he left the Hawks to go to the Clippers and now might have actually wound up in a place where he's going to go less far and be knocked out in round one. That could actually happen while the Hawks go to round two, (laughs) which is kind of crazy if you think about it. I'm with you Anushan. I, I look at this as these teams are extremely even, and I would be really surprised, honestly, if, I don't say really surprised, I, I could see the Hawks winning in six, but when, when teams are this even, when, when one team is so much better in some areas, and other team is so much better in other areas, you expect that they're going to each win three games, and then it's going to go to that game seven, I think in a game seven, that arena will be so juiced, and really, sometimes like arenas could get tight For instance, if the Clippers were in a game seven and they really had their fans there that's a franchise that has a lot of weight on it right over the course of decades I remember the Cavs always felt this way to me whenever they were in a game seven I felt like there was this tension with their fans right it was like oh they're waiting for the other shoe to drop with the Knicks fans I think that might be the case after many many heartbreaks like in the old days but I actually think they're just excited no matter what that place will be rocking and it's hard for you to imagine that enough Hawks role players who've never been there before We'll be able to perform in that stage. So it's kind of a homer pick, but I do think we'll get it to a game seven. If we get to a game seven, I expect us to win and face us with Sixers in round two, in which it will be a brutal series for the sake of our familial relationships. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, if we meet you in the second round, it's definitely gonna have a little bit of a family rivalry bubbling there.
1: Go New York, go New York, go. Trust the
0: process.
1: Yeah, I mean, just it reminds me of when my Raptors played against us, we Sixers. But instead of us like kind of going back and forth at each other, we were going back and forth at our own teams. Like, what the hell's going on with these guys? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it we'll, was it was a good time though.
0: Yeah, and we'll, we'll probably take our dad to one of the games because you know, he's a diehard Knicks fan so it'll be fun come on new york do it for the run
1: family please (laughs) i think that's a great place to stop the playoffs have been absolutely insane i'm looking so forward to all these game threes and you know we can only see what's gonna happen from here as always thank you so much for tuning in with us don't forget to like comment subscribe and listen wherever you catch your podcast and we'll catch you in the next one all right guys take care trust the process